Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, listeners. Today is Monday, March 16. The podcast you are about to hear, however, was recorded earlier in much sunnier times before COVID-19 went truly global. If you'd like to stay up to date on the latest developments with the virus, we've launched a dedicated newsletter to cover global news about the pandemic. To sign up, please visit subchina.com slash coronavirus. Stay safe and wash your hands. This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SupChina Access, and you get all that and much more, with stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China. From the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands or, by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am in Los Angeles as I continue to work my way up the California coast in this series of cynical podcasts from the Golden State. Not too long ago, the blossoming romance between the Chinese and American film industries looked like it was headed for a Hollywood ending. But with the precipitous decline in Sino-American relations, an American president obsessed with trade deficits, and a Chinese president obsessed with stability, national security, and asserting China's rightful place in the world, and with growing suspicion and mistrust between these two massively consequential nations, the impact on that once blooming relationship has been, well, pretty goddamn dreadful. Today on Seneca, we will look at how the bilateral relationship has affected the film industry, both here in Los Angeles and across the Pacific. With me here to discuss this are two eminently knowledgeable individuals. Janet Young has been on our program before. You know her. Janet's been the producer of a number of feature films, including The Joy Luck Club and The People vs. Larry Flint was instrumental in bringing the great Chinese films of that storied fifth generation of Chinese auteurs to the U.S. And, of course, she was equally instrumental in taking major American film production to China. And she is a governor of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. She's also the incredibly cool big sister I never had. Janet, welcome back to Cynic. Hey. Hey, Kaiser. Great to see you, Xiao Didi. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I guess I should also add that Janet is on SubChina's advisory board, just, you know, to be transparent about all this. And uh, thanks for that. That's great to have you on that board. I'm also joined by Michael Berry, professor of contemporary Chinese cultural studies and director of the Center for Chinese Studies at UCLA. He's the author of numerous books, including Speaking in Images, Interviews with Contemporary Chinese Filmmakers. Michael is also a badass bass player. Uh, we just spent the last hour geeking out over like 70s, mostly 70s and 80s fusion. That, that's right. I found my long lost brother. <laughs> hey, so this is a gathering of siblings. So, uh, this is a, an absolute delight to have you both here. Um, Janet, we're at UCLA right now. You, you, Janet was just telling me a story about how uh, your own reminiscence about uh, how UCLA played a part in your introduction to Chinese film. A, a very big part, actually. As I was wandering around, uh, thinking back on the time back in the 80s when I was staying at the UCLA guest, guest house and looking at Chinese films on a flatbed at the UCLA Film Archives run by Jeff Gilmore, I had at the time been living in New York, but I returned from China with a young man that I helped sponsor. And 
the sponsorship was actually created by uh, Perry Link at the time, yes. a professor at UCLA. And he got him a scholarship. And one of the first things that this young man named Yaping Wong wanted to do while he was living at my parents' home over the summer in Scarsdale, New York, was to make a movie. And of course, <laughs> at the time, I was super annoyed because I thought, you just got here. I'm teaching you how to drive and English and, and you know how to get a driver's license. I mean, really, you want to make a movie now? But he ended up miraculously wandering around our fairly uh, wealthy neighborhood, knocking on people's doors saying, hi, my name is Ping. I'm from Beijing, China. And at the time, that was a very, very novel thing. Oh, yeah. And people opened up their homes to him. And the next thing we knew, we were being invited to dinner at Seymour Topping's house, who was one of the publishers of the New York Times, or Fred Durst's house. Oh, my God. And they gave us money to make this documentary film that he chose to uh, uh, really make a, about driving across America. He he wanted to see, quote-unquote, America through Chinese eyes. So it's called, actually, East to West, colon, America through Chinese eyes. And we gathered a bilingual crew because he barely spoke English. We gathered a, a bilingual crew, and we found a young woman also at NYU who was from China. She was the first actress to leave China from the Shanghai Film Studios. Her name is Ann Yen, Yen Zhilin. <laughs> and she said, oh, I know some other Chinese-speaking uh, filmmaking students at NYU. And so why don't we, you know, come together and do this? They were all from Taiwan and Hong Kong. And lo and behold, the person that became our sound, sound man was none other than Ang Lee. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a story. Uh, and again, this is, you know, those bright beginnings that don't uh, pan out so uh, so very well. Uh, before we we dive into to U.S.-China, it's the case, I think, that the PRC has been ruffling feathers in greater China as well. Uh, politics have really sort of come to the fore. And not like they haven't. Michael, you just came back recently from China where you were at the Golden Rooster, is that right? Which was held in Xiamen this year. That's right. Tell me about that. I mean, the circumstances behind why they decided to do it in Shaman, what's going on with the two golden awards, um, you know, the golden horse and the golden rooster, and uh, how Hong Kong is playing into all of this. So the Golden Horse Film Festival has about more than 55 years of history. Right. And it's often described as the quote-unquote Academy Awards of the Chinese language film industry. And over the years, it also started off as a somewhat propagandistic organ under the government, but eventually it was able to establish itself as an independent cultural organization. And it's really become a great haven and a place to celebrate achievements in Chinese language film, regardless of region. And right. so there are films from mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, even Southeast Asia. On the other hand, the Golden Rooster Award has often has still held on to those more propagandistic roots. And so I think a lot of people look at it as almost a uh, to celebrate state. kind of state films. And often the, the films that win the leading awards at the Golden Rooster each year are basically main mel melody films, films that are kind of footing the towing the party line, etc. However, last year, things started to change at the Golden Horse Film Festival when a film that was awarded best documentary film called My Youth in Taiwan won the prize. And the director, when she was making her uh, acceptance speech, she made some pro-independence comments. Pro-Taiwan independence comments, right. That triggered an immediate backlash. And so all PRC filmmakers refused to attend the closing banquet after the ceremony. And even as early as that night, I heard rumors that there may be a moratorium on PRC films being sent to the Golden Horse. And actually, they did this spontaneously. They all said, okay, after that speech, we're not attending the, there, the, the banquet now. Or There must have been a WeChat group or some way that that information was communicated. So none of the PRC filmmakers attended wow. the banquet. And there was already very quick, there were these rumblings that there would be longer repercussions. And indeed, many months later, there was the announcement that no PRC films would be permitted to participate in the Golden Horse. And 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 it did start to even affect Hong Kong filmmakers who were kind of in the middle and they had to choose sides, so to speak. So, for instance, Johnny Toe, the great kind of Hong Kong mm -hmm. auteur, makes a lot of action and gangster films. He was originally tapped to be the jury head of the Golden Horse for this this year. And at the 11th hour, he withdrew and they had to find someone else to take his place. Wow. 
And then in the meantime, the Golden Rooster Award started to change their gears a little bit. It used to be a biannual award. As of this year, it will be an annual award. And it used to be held at different cities throughout China. But starting this year, they moved it to Xiamen, which is, of course, just across a stone's throw away from the Taiwan Straits. And they also moved the date to correspond the same night as the Golden Horse. And so... uh, by this kind of triple combination of moving it geographically as close to Taiwan as you can get to the same date as the Golden Horse Award, and then also prohibiting PRC filmmakers to attend the Golden Horse, they really complicated things and made what's essentially two independent uh, film festivals highly politicized in terms of this line of demarcation that was drawn between the two. At the same time, was it the Golden Rooster? Uh, didn't they make at least some sort of a nod to to... Um, some more artistic films this year. I mean, well, p- part of this move also was the Golden Rooster, which uh, usually does not honor independent or right. kind of more experimental films. This year, three of the biggest awards Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay all went to a film called So Long My Son by Wang Shaoshui, which is right. a much edgier and kind of, it's a basically an art house film. It's exactly. The, the kind of film it wouldn't have honored in past years. And so, on the one hand, they're making a clear, putting out a clear sign that they're trying to be taken seriously as a real venue to celebrate cinema uh, and not just propaganda films. Of course, the two biggest awards, Best Film and Best Director, still went to films that very much towed the party line, uh, Operation Red Sea and uh, The Wandering Earth. (laughs) I I thought, first of all, that was a wonderful summary, Michael, of these two festivals. I think the audiences may not already know the Golden Horse takes place in Taiwan. Right. In Taipei. And the the Golden Rooster takes place in mainland. So I think it's important to clarify. And my recollection of what happened last year was that actually a few of the actors, Gong Li, was on the jury, if I'm not mistaken. She immediately responded. Or some, or she, or perhaps she was someone, some very high profile actors definitely immediately responded saying, oh, we're not coming back or something. It might have been a, an, a something that was already decided on in, in their circles, but there was an instantaneous um, outcry about that comment. So it was pretty clear that they, the paths were going to diverge. And not only did the Jimajia, the Golden Horse, not take the mainlanders, they, the, I think the mainland government decided we're not sending early anybody. on, we're not sending anybody. There was, it was very clear that there, these paths were going to diverge. Janet, every year for, my God, how many decades now, you've, you've been to China. You go to China for various projects. This year was an exception. Tell us what's going on. Why did Janet Yang not go to, to China this year? It was, it, first of all, and this is not just an excuse, I did get very, very busy here. There's been this complete seesaw effect in my experience uh, between the activity in the U.S. and China. And by that, I mean throughout the 80s, there was so much optimism. I was bringing those Chinese films over. I was representing American films. I got to work with Steven Spielberg on Empire of the Sun. And it was just, you know, Bertolucci was making Last Emperor Mm -hmm. around the same time. And it was just, everything was on the up and up and up and up. And then things crashed in 89, as all of us know. And so, ironically, in the 90s, I spent most of my time here. I went to China a couple of times to the film festival, but there was so much going on here. I was working with Oliver Stone, Lee Sands. I had a num- quite a few projects that I was producing that weren't particularly China-based. And then I got a little bit itchy again in the 2000-something. In 2008, 9, 10, 11, I was in China quite a bit making a film for Disney, the Chinese version of High School Musical, and right. then um, the the indie movie Shanghai Calling. I had been there a, several years earlier shooting parts of a movie called Dark Matter with Liu Ye and Meryl Streep. And so I started getting excited about China while Hollywood seemed to be losing its grip. It was not – the studios were starting to make only uh, tenpole movies, giant, giant movies, not right. interesting to me. Um, the indie movie was uh, market was kind of dropping out, and I just didn't see that much hope for what I always felt like was my mission to bring less represented stories to the screen. So I thought, okay, China, I'm going to go back to China. I was invited actually back in 2001, and it was right after the um, 9-11, and right. America's very depressed. China just had been reborn. So I was really focusing a lot of my attention towards China in those years, and then everything flipped again in the sense that China became more difficult to work. 
and 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 there was just less hospitality towards non-Chinese filmmakers. There was a lot of uncertainty, the tax issues, a lot of companies were falling apart. So there was this that that surge period was um, what we saw a lot of were Chinese companies investing in both productions and production companies and studio slates and just so much activity. And I I chart this a lot because I chair this U.S. China now U.S. Asia Entertainment Summit every November. And so I saw when the Chinese were very happy to come over. They wanted to come over and sponsor our events so they could get their picture with Zhang Yimou, who we had here, or Feng Xiaogang, or Xu Zheng, or whatever. You know, so it was like, it was so exciting to see how there were, on both sides, just a lot of courtship and a lot of a lot of marriages, a lot of engagements, right. certainly. And this, I knew not just this past year, but even starting last year, things were really dying down, and people just started acting much more cautious. They did not want to come over. They were uh, perhaps restricted from from uh, any outward investments, and it just everything changed. And in the meantime, what happened here was so exciting. We had a movie like Crazy Rich Asians, like The Farewell. There was suddenly this idea that Asian content could be made here, right here in Hollywood. And while it may not play extremely well in China, it was at least something that would play around the world. And so I just got very busy developing projects here, getting very involved with the Academy, getting uh, co-founding this organization called Gold House, which promotes Asian content. And just overnight, it seems, and it was, of course, not overnight, but probably Bottom in the last couple of years, China didn't seem to be a place where I was particularly welcome or just mm. didn't have the just didn't have the juice anymore while, while being here offered up so many opportunities. Michael, you, you've described a kind of perfect storm uh, where quite a, a number of components have converged to really louse things up in the Chinese film industry. Uh, what, what are some of the threads that you're talking about? Uh, well, there, there's a couple things that converged. One was the tax scandal. Right. You know, involving Fen Bingbing and the whole entertainment industry. This, of course, was launched by a film critic and a TV host, uh, Choi Yongyuan, who posted yeah. some, uh, some some comments dual, on dual contracts. Yes, the the Yin Yang or the dual contracts on social media, which initially well, so those, explain what that means to, to people, just so they understand. Sure. So it's if you're an actor and you sign a contract for say a million dollars to star in a film. But then there's another contract that says your salary is $10 million. And the one that you submit to the tax state and for tax returns is the $1 million one, and you pocket the rest. Right. And apparently this practice had been going on in the industry for some time. And Tsui Yongyuan had basically blew the lid on this. And that caused them- What was Tsui's motivation in this? Was it just because of a deep and abiding concern for the fiscal soundness of the Chinese state? Or <laughs> it, It's unclear. To me, um, I, I've, there's many rumors about what his motivation may or may not have been. However, in the wake of that, I think he's become a kind of, I don't want to say a wanted man, but right. I don't think he's he's fell out of favor, I think, because he destroyed the industry to a large degree. He blew up. Uh, a lot of companies went bankrupt in the wake of this expose. Uh there was a lot of actors who all of a sudden found themselves in a very precarious situation. Studios went under. It had huge, huge repercussions. And one of them was that the state came in and said, well, now we're going to alter our tax bracket for people in the arts, especially those high income earners. And so it went from, maybe Janet knows the figures, I think from maybe 8% to 43% or something. Something like something. that. And they they were doing it across the board, the, whether or not you were extremely profitable, they were asking for massive amounts of taxes. Mm. And what I think one of the most disturbing things is that it created a lot of conflict within the film industry, you know, between filmmakers and actors, and suddenly everyone is just on guard all the time. And it was such a, it was such a lively, congenial atmosphere before and I think this really threw a wrench in that yeah so that was and that was just the first factor first one thread yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you also have of course now the trade war playing out right. and and I wouldn't necessarily group these together but the trade war but also a general challenge to the whole model of the so-called co-production which had been all the talk of the town for several years but right. in the wake of the Great Wall and something like a 60 million dollar loss that also a lot of people started to rethink that model of production Another important thread is censorship in China and the fact that the film industry 
was reallocated to be under the arm of the propaganda ministry right. about two years ago. So and now so, this was when the reorganization that took general to administration of press and publication and merged it with the state administration of radio, film, and television. But somehow film is no longer directly under Gapsarft. Now, how does that work? So now film has to is part of the branch that basically controls propaganda in, wow. in, in China, which is something that's how it used to be in the good old days of Mao, but now we've kind of took a step backwards. And so you put these things together and it really creates an environment that stifles creativity and places a lot of limitations on artists in order to really, both financial, political, uh, in terms of the market, it's just a very precarious environment to navigate What's right interesting now. is that the official translation of the Zhong Jianbu has changed from propaganda ministry to the publicity, publicity. ministry, <laughs> which is frankly something that I had thought of in the past. I was like, propaganda is in a way publicity, but now they're officially calling that. The yeah. other thing that I think is so cute, Michael, I have to just say, when you said, said main melody films, I'm like, do people know what that Zhu is? Xuan. Zhu Lu <laughs> is a direct translation of a very common Chinese term. So just mainstream films, but yes. I'm, I'm not sure if a non-Chinese speaking audience would know <laughs> but what but main melody English. films. <laughs> well, the main melody, basically it's propagandistic films. They're films that are you know, that come out often in certain times of the year to celebrate, say, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the party, or, and often they carry a certain political motivation. However, I have to say, there is also a change there, because in the past when they made the Jian Guo, Jian Dak mm. movies, right, they, people went, people went, they were obligated to go, but this year I heard the that me and my uh my country, motherland. my motherland, did extremely well. People actually really, really liked the film. The same with The Captain, which is based mm-hmm. on the true story of the pilot who did this incredible landing. So I believe that because, number one, the filmmaking techniques have improved a lot, and that that film, Me and My Motherland, was, as you know, made by seven different directors, China's top directors, all contributed to it. Maybe not entirely willingly at first, but they did it. And they apparently, I haven't seen it, I really want to see it, but apparently they did a really good job. So they were able to actually lure audiences in on their own accord. And people went to see it again and again and again. And I think Chinese youth are feeling very, very nationalistic right now. Or patriotic is perhaps a better word. You know, this is actually a really important trend that's happening. And I would actually date it to, to founding of the party, founding of the Republic, yeah, which well, is, yeah, yeah. We, you know, and what's basically happening is these so-called main melody or propaganda films, which used to be, as you mentioned, obligatory films that every, you maybe your Danway, your work unit would buy tickets and everybody would be obligated to go. But since that time, this is about a decade ago, I think the film industry started to find ways in which to marry propaganda films with commercial film Oh, they just uh, threw techn- in every single star there is, right? right? Everyone gets a cameo, right? Well, and also sometimes hiring a uh, Hong Kong director, you know? Right. Like uh, Yudong of Bonat mm-hmm. has done an amazing job with these main Operation melody films. I'm going to start yeah, calling yeah. main melody with these so-called. I don't. And so, you know, there was a lot of criticism when a movie like um, Wolf Warrior 2 came out mm-hmm. because they said, oh, this is like so propagandistic, whatever. And then other people tried to say, well, so is Rambo. They took a page out of our playbook and said, we're going to make films about Chinese heroes and not American heroes and people who actually have that kind of almost rugged individualism and are able to battle the forces of authority or whatever. And that is a very tried and true formula for movies. So I temper those criticisms a lot because I say, well, are they not allowed to have that feeling, that surge of, oh, my God, this heroism? (laughs) So, you know. Uh, I can't wait to see those other two main melody movies. But um, I just the phenomenon, I think, is really interesting that people are going because they want to go. And that's very different from how it was. And then when I was living in Beijing in the 80s and working in the foreign languages press, yes, once a week we were given these tickets. We went. That was It was so clearly this is part of your homework. Right, you know, this right. is this is medicine. This is part of your homework, and I think it's completely changed now. And that's the you know part of the growth of the whole film industry with the beautiful theaters and and whatnot. So the two of you, between the two of you, you must know an awful lot of filmmakers who are kind of hunkered down here in in Southern California, uh, Chinese filmmakers that is, uh, who really think maybe this is a good time to sort of sit things out and maybe work on that longer screenplay that I've been thinking about. 
Um, what, give me give me a sense of from from the people that you're talking to of what the atmosphere feels like in China right now for them. Well, a few of the filmmakers I've spoken to just feel, just because of the factors we talked about the, right. the tax issue, the censorship issue, just not a great time to make creative work in China for right. some filmmakers. There's and I should. Be very clear for other filmmakers. This is a golden age, and if you can toe the party line and you can, you know, get in bed with the man, you can you can make some really great business moves during this moment of you know the box office receipts are, are growing. But yeah, if you're somebody I mean, who's that, I, that, that seems sort of co- yeah, counterintuitive. I, think, I, I don't see people. it as being so black and white. What about hmm. uh, Shawnee Didn't Eat? That just came out, right? That's a movie. That's a very daring movie. I had the same feeling when I was watching that as when I was watching Wobushi uh, Yashen. The oh, shooting yeah. movie, Dying to Survive. Yeah, yeah. This one is called, what's the English title for Shania Dini? Uh, Bu- bully, um, something bully. Have you heard about no, this? No, I, I haven't heard about he- it. No. Oh, my no. God. I've, something I've it missed. Was, it was uh, censored, censored. Then they made some uh, changes, and it played to huge box office. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially about bullying in middle school. Oh, yeah, and no, no, I heard about this. Yeah, 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 the yeah. pressures of the gog call. Right, and then, right, 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 You right. know, this one girl who's very, very smart and doing well academically, but she befriends this sort of what would be considered a the ne'er-do-well person, yeah. you know, Xiao uh, Mang or whatever you want to call it, just somebody who's outside the system. Ah, and that movie played extraordinarily well. Um, what they did at the end, just as they did with Dying to Survive, is they put in a postscript and said, this is what the government is doing to tackle the problem of bullying. <laughs> Just like with Wobushiyashin, this is what the government is doing to tackle the problem of you know drugs costing too much, making it seem like this problem is solved. But it was a way, I mean, personally, I think if you can have it both ways, you know, if you can show this film, which again, I'm watching it thinking, this is so daring. Did they really <laughs> let this, is this a mistake? But they let these films get shown and then they, you know, still cap it off with a, a, a nice message and saying, you know, we're, we're happy this is being revealed because this is what we're doing. So I like in the, the um, filmmaker's name escapes me at the moment, but very, very, very talented uh, filmmaker. And that person actually is now represented by a big agency here in America. And so there's a lot of this kind of like what's who's the new talent, not to mention the plethora of China-born filmmakers who are making films here. Hmm. Quite a few. Who should we be looking for? You should be looking for Chloe Zhao, who's mm-hmm, making mm-hmm. a big Marvel movie called The Eternals. You should be looking at Kathy Yin, who's making a DC Comics movie called Birds of Prey. Mm-hmm. You should be looking at... Now, sometimes I'm not clear whether they were... Like James Wan is doing a ton of movies. He's Based in Australia, he might be China-born. I can't remember, but there there are many others that are coming into the mix. But then you have people like Dana Wu who's coming back and making sure. more movies here. Like what I'm seeing is a lot. Of, first of all, the rise of a lot of Asian actors. There's suddenly so many more movies with an all Asian cast. Right. Or you have a movie like The Farewell, which is 80% in Mandarin. Um, Lulu, Lulu was born, Lulu Wang was born in, in China. And you have her grandmother played by Zhao Shudun, who's like a very big star in China, actually making the Academy Awards circuit. This is fantastic, right? Yeah. We've never seen this. I never imagined this would happen in my well, lifetime. In the, in the aftermath of Oscars So White, the hashtag Oscars So White thing, uh, there's been what looks like a, a real effort to increase representation of, of East Asians in Hollywood. Um, like you said, you know, Crazy Rich Asians and The Farewell. Uh, these do really well in box office here in the U.S. Crazy Rich Asians did extraordinarily well, uh, and they received quite a bit of critical acclaim. I'm going to ask, though, are these films finding any resonance in China? And if they are not, why is that? They are not, <laughs> for the most part. I can't say for sure about The Feral. I don't think it's been officially released, but no, I think the reason it hasn't been released is because there was no great date to, you know, and great. It's just, I think for Chinese audiences to watch a movie like that, which is special to Western audiences because it's a glimpse into Chinese culture, a very authentic glimpse into it. I think the Chinese just think, what's so the big what? deal? This right. is our daily lives. You know, they don't understand what makes it so, you know, endearing. Um, it's too It's too ordinary for them. It's just not, you know, they want to, I think, usually see something that takes them outside of their daily lives. And Crazy Rich Asians was clearly a film that was more of a popcorn movie that was just incredibly fun. Part of the thrill for all of us was seeing Asian actors be 
sexy and you know colorful and emotional and just daring and and while still maintaining a, a thread of this is the kind of culture that we're dealing with with the mother-in-law you know the mother of the Henry Golden character and disapproving of the daughter potential mm-hmm. daughter-in-law you know so there were to me elements that were very relatable but it was also just so much fun and I think just the the visual feast of it just made everybody you know delighted well, my, my Chinese friend said something effective a rom-com with an all-Asian cast we've got plenty of those <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny but, uh, and, and I you know, and I think also a part of this of course it, like crazy rich Asians here in the US it also became part of almost a social movement because of the long history of underrepresentation and you know white characters playing Asian characters right. and and it was an attempt to kind of right so many wrongs and so it really became a kind of movement and sure. people getting out uh, some loved the film but some just also wanted to just support what it represented whereas like you said in China it's another film with an all Asian cast which every other Chinese film already has it's the same reasons why we all rushed out and bought between the world and we Don Hasi yeah. Um, but, you know, still, rather than converging, as I think a lot of us really hoped and, and felt like uh, was going to happen, it feels like the, the, there's a cultural and, and, and an aesthetic gap that's widening now between what, what Chinese, mainland Chinese audiences are looking for in a film. Um, and I mean, Janet, you might disagree. I mean, I think you just talked about one, that, but it, it feels like when my American friends see uh, certain Chinese films that, that – get a lot of critical acclaim in China, something like The Wandering Earth, or maybe more extreme examples of, you know, Stephen Chow movies, or The Mermaid, or whatever. Uh, they, they, they're they baffled. They can't understand what the appeal possibly could have been, why this would have been regarded as a good as a good film. Um, I'm not sure it goes the other way, but certainly there does seem to be that disconnect. I think about my own daughter, uh, who's now 15, and her interest in sort of televisual culture there. I, I look at the shows that she watches now, and it's, I don't know if it's generational, generational, probably mostly generational, but uh, I'm baffled. Uh, what's going on here? I think China, of course, being the gargantuan market that it is, is has become more and more... It, it, first of all, Chinese filmmakers most of whom I think uh, most of them have concluded, well, I can't figure out what those other people want, but I do know China. I right. know the Chinese audience. I can make a movie that's JDT that really like speaks to the pulse of what's going on for Chinese. JDT, I think maybe needs to be explained. Is, is, um, what's the best translation yeah, for well, that? Just um, resonates. Close to it's the ground. Resonant, um, yeah. Close to the ground. It's, it's just, it resonates. Finger on the pulse or whatever. And so there, those films, like the ones we talked about, the, <laughs> the main melody films or or and and sometimes not the main melody films. Like for instance, I, and I when I was interviewing Xu Zheng last year, we talked about this because you have these social issue films like Dying to Survive and like this one, Shawnee I wish I could remember the name the of it. The bullying film. Yeah. The bully film. Those are really important issues that, if the topics were relevant to Western audiences, I think they would also do well. But because. We don't need to see, we have enough of our own social issue movies, so we don't need to see the social issue movies about China so much, whereas the Chinese audiences are really imbibing them, you know, mm-hmm. in a big way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, just like with Baidu versus Google, like Alibaba versus, you know, Amazon, they're just, they have enough people to go their own path. They right. don't need, most countries don't have the market size. They really need the, you know, and not to say China doesn't like American movies. Of course, they're still seeing, if you look at the top 10 movies, you know, a portion of them are American movies, but a good portion are not. And they're they're able to make their own blockbusters. And I think that's what's fascinating. And those films are going to be so specific to the Chinese experience, it just will leave other people in the dust, you know. So it, it is it is in some ways, we've never had this before. In the past, it was always American movies that were blockbusters and that could sell all over the world. Now, for the first time, there are literal blockbusters, movies that are making hundreds of millions of dollars that are not being seen more or less outside of China. They do play in little Chinese diaspora communities right. and whatnot, but they're really not reaching, reaching a mainstream audience anywhere outside of China. But that's just fine <laughs> because right. they're doing perfectly well in China alone. No, but this this definitely is one of the big game changers. And I think like Wolf Warrior 2, 
we mentioned that earlier in terms of the propaganda and all of that. But actually, I think the big wake-up call for a lot of Hollywood producers was here was a local Chinese film that made something like $650, $700 million only in the Chinese market. And you had it again with Wandering Earth, you know, something like $800 million. Whereas a Hollywood film, you know, like these Avengers movies or Iron Man, these films have like $200 million budgets, but they need the global market to make that money back and to really make a profit. But these Chinese films can do it all at home without just, without even worrying about this bigger picture. Um, You know, if I could give one other example of this, really interesting case is a Hong Kong director, Peter Chan, who started out making local kind of comedies, genre films in Hong Kong. He did had a little flirtation with Hollywood. He made a film called The Love Letter with Tom Selleck and Ellen DeGeneres. Didn't do that great. Went back to Hong Kong, started a production company called Applause Pictures, which was trying to pioneer pan-Asian films. So he would make a say, a Thai film with a Hong Kong actress, or he would make uh, omnibus films Mm -hmm. pairing Japanese, Korean, and Hong Kong films together, three shorts. And that was fairly successful for a couple of years. But what's he doing now? About 10 years ago, he went to mainland China, and he makes films exclusively for the PRC market. What might we have seen from him? uh, Chinese Dreams in America. Okay, That was very successful by around 2013 or so. But basically, he for so long... American Dreams in China. American Dreams in China. And and for so long, he worked so hard to pioneer something that would cross borders and take Chinese cinema out to the world. But now, he's almost given up and realized he doesn't need to go anywhere. He can just stay in China. And actually, it's probably a much more lucrative market than anywhere else. And he's making a film about the famous tennis star and the famous volleyball player. One is Li Na, and he's making another film. Li Na is the tennis tennis player. And he's making another film about a Chinese volleyball player. Mm. So he is, and I think I've seen many directors go that route. For instance, Stephen Chow. Kung Fu Hustle was a much, you know, loved movie by audiences all over the world. Can we say the same thing about Monkey King? I don't think no, so. No, no, no. Um, John Woo was a much touted director from Hong Kong who made international movies. Then he went, he made Chibi, he made Red Cliff. Yeah. So I think you almost have to choose at this moment in time. Not to say there isn't some crossover, but you have to figure out what your main market is. And, and you know, the rest is icing on the cake. I loved Red Cliff, though. I mean, I can't help it. I'm a such Sanguayangi fan, so I couldn't but love it. But also my father-in-law was in it, so. So another thing between the two markets is that there's just a very different sensibility between what Chinese viewers watch and what American viewers watch or international audiences. And part of that's tied to history, to culture, to uh, customs. And it's a very, sometimes it can be very subtle and sometimes it can be very blatant. But this does translate into audiences having a very different appreciation of different types of stories right. and certain films playing well in mar- one market and falling on their face in another. And so I think we, we talked about uh, conversations I've had with film producers here in Hollywood who just are flabbergasted and asking me, you know, how does a film like The Mermaid or Monster Hunt, how does it do these kind of numbers? And they just couldn't wrap their heads around you know, who was going to see these kind of films because they just couldn't, it, in, in their logic, this narrative just doesn't work. Right, but somehow right. in the Chinese market, it does work. And so Hollywood has mastered a kind of pattern of making stories that do translate across borders and languages quite successfully. But Chinese films have had a little more difficulty when it comes to border crossing. Right. But because of the numbers, because of the size of China, maybe it doesn't need to cross those borders anymore. Yeah, yeah. So um, what about China as a market for Western films? I mean, we were still dealing with that that onerous, uh, what is it, 39 films or 34. So? 34. 34 films a year that can go in. Uh, is Hollywood still looking at China as a big, fat, important market? Are they doing more than the sort of token inclusion of a 30-second spot featuring one of the Bing Bings uh, in an Avengers movie or what, what have you, uh, putting... Jiang Wei in in Rogue One in in a sort of disposable role. What what are they doing now uh, besides censoring the movies? <laughs> what are studios? What are studios Chinese doing? doing? To, are they well, still looking at China as an important market? There's small little gestures being done, like they took off the nationalist flag from Tom Cruise's jacket in the new remake of Top Gun. The, yeah. top, new, the remake of Top Gun. I, I I think that particular aspect of like of of pandering to the Chinese market or succumbing, which is what a lot of people are talking about. I just think a lot of it's exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, it, so what? You know, <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> what what's interesting is that it works both ways. That movie, Abominable, the animated movie that Pearl Studios made, which was about a little girl who accompanies a Yeti back home, they showed a map of China, which is the map that's used in in schools in China right. today. Which, of course, would be the map that you'd want to show in the movie about a young Chinese girl was criticized, roundly criticized, and that movie was forbidden to show in Philippines, in Malaysia, and in Vietnam. Right. Because, because it had they because Chinese of the way they the Yes, line. exactly. Right. So it's everyone's hypersensitive today. <laughs> and one has to be really careful. Going all ways. It there's I, I find a really disturbing sense of just you know, divisiveness in, in things large and small. We we talked just briefly about Hong Kong. <clears throat> I choose not to speak much more about it, but clearly it's creating a lot of divisiveness. And the unfortunate thing is it seems like the referendum on the table is China bashing, you know, or not. You know, yeah. it, it's really come down to that. And I don't think it, the issues are that simple. So do you think that it's the icy hand of Chinese censors reaching out across the Pacific uh, to, to strangle, I mean, to... Or, or is this really more on the studios themselves? Are, are the decisions that are being taken to, made preemptively or in response to uh, Chinese nationalist outcries? Well, I think if we look back historically, back in the late 90s, there was a group of films, Red Corner, Seven Years in Tibet, Quindun, which uh, resulted in major American kind of media conglomerates and corporations having their interests jeopardized in China. And I think a lot of them learned their lesson back then and learned to kind of walk on glass when it comes to content in the Chinese market. And as the superhero films have gotten, their budgets have gotten increasingly bloated, I think they're increasingly prudent about content that may perhaps offend the Chinese government or the Chinese market. And so I think at a very early stage of development, they're already vetting projects to make sure if they want this film to be released in China, that it's safe and clean for the Chinese market. But that's happening internally. And it's not being done retroactively in response to... I mean, so this isn't. This has less to do with Daryl Morey and, and his tweets on, on Hong Kong than it has to do with, say, Sony taking the Chinese and turning them into North Koreans in a remake of Red Dawn. Yeah, it's it's quite subtle, and it's. I mean, I I once wrote a piece where I described it as a long time ago. I lived in Santa Barbara, and on the beach there, there was a shepherd who had these electric fences where he would put the sheep in, and you'd never see see the sheep get within five or ten feet of these electric fences because they know what happens. And I think that's how censorship works in China. It's not so much the heavy hand of the state slapping you down, but it's publishers, film studios, knowing more or less where those lines are and anticipating them by vetting the material so that it doesn't you don't have to get zapped. And over the last decade or so, I think a lot of Hollywood studios as well have been internalizing that practice in the same type of type of way. And you know and I don't think it's a business and they have these incredibly expensive films and they don't want to be ostracized from the Chinese market. And so they just see that as the price of doing business in China. And um, to your point about Hong Kong, uh, the new film of the Disney live action remake of Mulan is now, I mean, there are a lot of people in Hong Kong calling for a boycott of that because the mainland born actress, Liu Fei, who was cast in it, uh, retweeted something uh, in support of the Hong Kong police. Uh, so the politics are, are you know, all, all around us, right, Janet? I'm hoping that has since faded into the background because then we had the NBA scandal and now we have the soccer scandal. There's so many that are just coming up. Who can even keep track? And <laughs> I think in the end, I mean, the Mulan um, trailer just came out, the full trailer. It looks gorgeous. Oh, I it think looks there's terrific. a lot of anticipation yeah. about seeing that movie. And I'm less concerned about that now. I just think that there are people sometimes find this situation to be one where they get to, you know, it, it is, it, I, so, I just cannot believe how divisive it's made people feel. You, there's so much emotion around it. There's so much um, non-negotiable kind of viewpoints about it. And I, I find it really a, a lose-lose situation, frankly. Oh, yeah, if I could spend some time on Twitter. <laughs> God, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean the Lily Lily Face scandal. It uh, she's probably one of 
tens of millions of people who've retweeted that particular tweet. And of course, as Janet mentioned, it's this kind of you're with us or you're against us. It's this very divisive. But I think there's, there is a gray area in the middle that people aren't seeing. And whether or not Lily Fay really deeply believes that sentiment she retweeted or she sim- it's simply a patriotic gesture that she feels obligated to fulfill, as do millions of others, to stay in good standing with, you know, people in China, that's something open to debate. But I think uh, this is not an activist per se. This is someone, I think, uh, carrying out a the same kind of action that millions of others do. And But it shows you how high the stakes are right now and high, how politicized the whole environment has become. So is there still substantial investment flowing from uh Chinese companies like Alibaba Pictures to U.S. studios. I know for for many years it was hard to see a film without seeing uh, in the opening credits a Chinese entity, whether it was the Huayi Brothers or whatever credited. Uh, Is that still happening? I don't think there's a lot of new investment. Alibaba, of course, invested largely in Amblin Pictures, so all the films that they're coming out with have, you know, certain Alibaba names attached to as producers and their company logo, whatever. But... um, I've seen a couple of this season, not nearly as many as in years past. So the the deals that were already done, I think, are, are being carried out. But What are some I've of those that very, we should look forward to? I think primarily Amblin. There was, what is the movie I just saw with a lot of credits? Forgive me. Um, Terminator was... Yeah, the uh, new Terminator is, uh, is, is, is... And I think the Gemini Man, is that... That had some Chinese funding. Chinese funding yeah. for that too. And that's, well, Ang Lee, I'm pretty sure, can get money from China yeah, yeah. no matter, you know, he could film the phone book and get investments. Speaking of Amblin, um, my first cousin, Arvind Chan, is screenwriter on a movie. Uh, it's called uh, The Banquet. Uh, can you tell me about the status of that right now? I know I, he's. I don't know, but I didn't know Arvin was your cousin. He is my first cousin. <laughs> yeah. I know that that's another example of some Asian, you know, talent that's that they're doing wonderful things. I don't know the exact status of that. You'll have to ask him. He's I your will. cousin. Well, I, I did. I, I mean, he, he, he. It's off. You know, his work is done. He's in the screenplay. And it's interesting because I actually um, was talking to somebody who was present at the at the banquet itself, Chaz Freeman, uh, who who was. Kissin, or Nixon's translator at the actual banquet. So uh, we did an interview with him and, and brought this up as well. Well, Nixon definitely changed my life. When I first met Jack Ma, his first words were to me is like, Nixon changed my life because Nixon went to Hangzhou. He thought he was just growing up in a sort of dinky little town. And then when the American president came to visit, he was like, oh my God, there's so much pride. And Nixon changed my life because my mother was working at the United Nations at the time. My parents had not been back to China in the time since they came over in the late 40s. And and so I grew up knowing nothing about China. And suddenly, out of the blue in 1972, we were allowed to go visit China. And I met all my relatives for the first time. So that's what is so bizarre about this U.S.-China relationship is real highs and lows, highs and lows. We are riding a roller coaster. And, you know, obviously now is not a high time so much. But but I believe it can be again, and it happens very quickly when it happens, and and then the the descent happens very quickly. You know, these years that so many of us bear, we're working on co-productions or whatnot, that we, with so much hope, and I think in the end, what I find is that I really like people who are in this China space because none of us can be control freaks. There's a sense of we are. There's a, a level of surrender that one must have, and you just have to go with the flow. Any bright spots at all in the Trans-Pacific film future for you? Is there anything, is it all doom and gloom right now? Well, I have a movie that is in production, an animated movie, a story that I created based on the legend of Chang'e, the moon goddess, about a young girl who wants to go to the moon to meet the moon goddess. That's all I'll say about it it now, but it's... um, Coming out next fall. Oh, of course Did you know that uh, that Mid's Autumn Festival falls on October first next year? Oh my gosh! How crazy is that? It's a major. So holiday. that's that's <laughs> going to be just the mother of all holidays. Indeed, indeed. And uh, I do have a number of other projects that have China elements. They're not ones that would be developed or necessarily even financed out of China, but I think would have some resonance in that market. We're going to let that stand as your recommendation for the recommendation section of the show. And I know we got to be respectful of your time, so take off, Janet. Uh, thank you. I'm here. so sorry I have to leave. No, no, no problem Academy. at all. But thank it was you. so lovely to see you. Nice to see you. Meanwhile, I am going to uh, move on to the, the recommendation section of the show, uh, and, Jan- and Michael will stick around for that. 
But let um, me first remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and even the other shows in the Seneca network, the very best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SupChina's daily newsletter. It's chock full of great reads all about China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. Great value for money. Sign up and spread the word. All right, Michael, J- Janet has recommended her Chang'e film, which is coming out next year. Uh, what do you have for our listeners? Let's, you know, I'm going to insist that we, you draw upon the canon of great noodly, uh, like bass, bassorific music that we were talking about over, over lunch today. Give some good band recommendations. Band recommendations. Or musician recommendations. Earlier we were talking about Polini, and uh, I think he's a New Zealand. Pelini, yeah, uh, I think he's Australian. I think is he New Zealand or Australian? Maybe New Zealand. Yeah, uh, yeah or maybe Australia. Australian. No, that uh, he's really good. Yeah, Pliny uh, the Younger. No, he's just Pliny. <laughs> it's P L I N. Who else were we right? talking? The Aristocrats. Uh, you know Anthony Kuhn. I'm going to give a shout out to him. He's the one who turned me on to the Aristocrats. So the Aristocrats are led by the, the guitarist, the extraordinary guitarist, Guthrie Govan. In fact, weirdly, all three members of that band have a literal names. Mark, Marco Miniman and... Brian Beller. Yeah, Brian Beller. That's it. Marco <laughs> Miniman, Brian Beller, and of course, Guthrie Govan, uh, the Aristocrats. And it, that, that name comes from, of course, the joke, the Aristocrats joke, which I can't tell because it's too dirty. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, Pliny, great stuff. Um, he's one of these guitar virtuosos that, that um, there are too many of them to keep track of these days. And some good Keith Jarrett solo piano, the Sun Bear concerts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's great stuff. And Staircase. Okay. I'll give you the, those two. Excellent recommendations. Uh, mine is for a uh, book that I'm reading right now. I'm, I'm going to make it with minor reservations. It's called The Mosquito, uh, and it's it's basically a history of of you know our relationship with that pest with it's you know it's basically about malaria dengue fever and and of course yellow fever um and tries to basically tell world history through the lens of the of of, of our relationship with the disease and he goes a little to the author's name is timothy weingard and he you know like a lot of books like this he he tugs a little too hard at it. He he's, tries to sort of shoehorn a little too much into the mosquito thing, but um, still, one cannot read this and not come away believing that, that it was a very, very, very impactful thing in history. So uh, I do recommend it with only the minorest of, of reservations. Hey, Michael, it was a, a real pleasure being here at UCLA. Thank you for coming. It's uh, great yeah, to talk to you. Funny. So uh, hopefully we'll catch you again soon. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and ta for ta the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China, and our newest network member, Strangers in China. Watch this space for new announcements of network shows that are coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.